Well, good morning. Welcome to Emmanuel Baptist Church. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. It is good to see all of you this morning, and I trust that you're like David this morning, that you were glad uh, when you were told, let us go to the house of the Lord. So this time I'm going to have Brother Rick uh, do the announcements, and then after he does the announcements, I'll come back and lead us in our call to worship. Um, first thing I'll start off with is uh, don't, don't forget we have the nursery services and, uh, um, for the kids, and um, if you'd like to help, also the Sunday school, if, if you're interested in helping, um, you know, make, sure, make sure that you talk to uh, Kaylee and Sister Kim. Um, Brother Ryan will be preaching at Lake Chapel today, so have him in your prayers and thoughts uh, while we're worshiping the Lord. Um, the Wayne Jessup group uh, tonight has been canceled, um, so uh, don't for, don't forget that. Um, and then, of course, the uh, the other small group uh, will be will be held tonight at uh, Brother Damien's house. Two seven one Dale Mill Road. Gotcha. Rather than taking a ride past Pastor Sean, let's take a left to Damien Brown. There we go. Pretty much so that we're right across the highway from Thomas's. We're going to talk to Pastor Thomas's old house. Gotcha. Um, Tuesday, the 16th, uh, the ladies' study is starting again, uh, 10 a.m., so take note of that, ladies. Um, BIC meeting will be this Saturday um, from 8 to 9.30. Uh, of course, uh, devotion and uh, fellowship. And then, of course, a meeting uh, to plan things uh, for the future work groups and stuff like that. Um, on the 21st next week, uh, Dr. James Renahan um, will be here um, from the International Reformed Baptist Seminary um, in Texas and will be at EBC preaching for us. Um, we plan to give him a report of the seminary, of, of the seminary Bible study and uh, preach during the morning worship. Uh, the book of the quarter, don't forget the book of the quarter. Um, there's still a couple out there, and there's some in mailboxes that haven't been, uh, haven't been taken yet. And if you would like one of those, uh, you know, please, please get one. And if you also um, would like to help offset the cost with that, a suggested donation or contribution for that is $10, but it's not required. It's just if you uh, feel that in your heart to do. Um, and then the ministries uh, update luncheon will be, oh, I'm sorry, that's Pastor John's. Gotcha. Yes. <clears throat> next next Lord's Day after the morning service, we'll have our first quarterly ministry uh, leaders lunch. Uh, if you are uh, leading one of the ministries of Emmanuel Baptist Church, and we have quite a few, uh, we ask you to stay for lunch. Lunch will be provided. We will be doing one of these a quarter. Um, come prepared to give a small report on your group, on your excuse me, on your ministry. And then uh, prayer concerns also that you have for that particular ministry. And we'll spend the time of reporting, uh, fellowship, and prayer. In the, uh, in the uh, handout, uh, the sermon notes are in the, in the fold there. And um, the uh, pantry was cleaned out by the ladies this week. There's a bunch of stuff on the center island that uh, if you could take a look at it, see if it's yours or not. If it still stays there, it's going to be donated in the future. So thank you to the ladies for um, cleaning that pantry out. We had a little bit of issue in there, and uh, that's been taken care of. Thank you, ladies. And uh, the hymns today will be from the Hymns of Grace. So are there anything, anything else that I missed? Or? No 
other announcements? If there are none, then uh, please uh, take a few moments to prepare our hearts for worship. Well, at this time, if you would please stand for our call to worship. Before we have our call to worship, if you would look at your bulletin and notice uh, some matters of our order of worship. The first hymn that we'll sing after the call to worship is Seek Ye First, and the words for that hymn will be on your bulletin. And then after that, we'll have the invocation, if Brother Ken would lead that invocation. And then following that, we'll sing together hymn number 76 out of the hymns of grace. Our call to worship this morning comes from the Gospel of Matthew, uh, chapters 6 and 7. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. Amen. Shall be opened unto 
Hymn number 76, Lord, with glowing heart, I'd praise thee. Please be seated. If you would take a copy of the scriptures and turn to the book of Psalms. And the particular psalm we will be reading this morning is Psalm number 55. We have noticed that we've, in this short section here, starting in Psalm 52, uh, we have seen uh, the theme of betrayal. We saw the betrayal uh, of an enemy in Psalm 52, you know, Doeg, the Edomite, who betrayed God's people, namely the city of the priests, where a bunch of priests were slaughtered on David's account. Uh, And then we saw in chapter 54 where 
David's own people, the, the people of Ziph and the wilderness of Ziph, where they betrayed him to Saul. And even uh, if you read the account, when he rescued the town, uh, God revealed to David that even the townspeople would betray him, uh, even after he rescued them. And so he writes that psalm of betrayal. But here in Psalm 55, it gets personal because it's not an enemy that betrays him. It's not just his people that betray him. But in this particular psalm, it's a friend that betrays him. Uh, some, some argue that it was Ahithophel who uh, would side with his son Absalom. Uh, there's, no, there's no proof of that. Uh, it could be uh, later on he could be talking of uh, Joab, who indeed was a close companion. But in the end, Joab betrayed him. Uh, we don't know exactly which close friend. You know, some people suggest Jonathan because Jonathan, of course, was his closest friend, but we've never seen any of that in Scripture. And so it wasn't Jonathan. Have you ever been betrayed by a friend? What actions do you take when that happens? Well, I think the appropriate action is to take it to the Lord and and. Pour your heart out to God as David does in this psalm. And of course, at the end, he will end up praising God. So let's read this psalm together. Let's hear the heart of David as he sings this song, this, this prayer, uh, as, as his heart breaks over this betrayal. He writes, Give ear to my prayer, O God, and hide not yourself from my plea for mercy. Attend to me and answer me. I am restless in my complaint and I moan because of the noise of the enemy, because of the oppression of the wicked. For they drop trouble upon me and in anger they bear a grudge against me. My heart is in anguish within me. The terrors of death have fallen upon me. Fear and trembling come upon me and horror overwhelms me. And I say, oh, that I had wings like a dove, I would fly away and be at rest. Yes, I would wander far away. I would lodge in the wilderness, Selah. I would hurry to find a shelter from the raging wind and tempest. Destroy, O Lord, divide their tongues, for I see violence and strife in the city. Day and night they go around it on its walls, and iniquity and trouble are within it. Ruin is in its midst. Oppression and fraud do not depart from its marketplace. For it is not an enemy who taunts me. Then I could bear it. It is not an adversary who deals insolent with me. Then I could hide from him. But it is you, a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend, we used to take sweet counsel together. Within God's house, we walked in the throng. Let death steal over them. Let them go down to Sheol alive. For evil is in their dwelling place and in their heart. But I call to God, and the Lord will save me. Evening and morning and at noon, I utter my complaint and moan, and He hears my voice. He redeems my soul in safety from the battle that I wage. For many are arrayed against me. God will give ear and humble them. 
He who is enthroned from of old, Selah, because they do not change and God and do not fear God. My companion stretched out his hand against his friends. He violated his covenant. His speech was smooth as butter, yet war was in his heart. His words were softer than oil, yet they were drawn swords. Cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. But you, O God, will cast them down into the pit of destruction. Men of blood and treachery shall not live out half their days. But I will trust in you. May God add his blessings to the reading of his word and may his people say, Amen. Amen. Well, our focus time of corporate prayer uh, this Lord's Day is three fam- excuse me, two families, uh, the Jensen family, Matt and his wife and children who are missionaries in Thailand, and the Van Zyl family who are in South Africa uh, moving to Thailand to join in the ministry with the Jensen family. I don't believe the move has taken place yet. I think that's planned for early this year. Uh, Maybe February? I think I've read February. So let's pray that God would bless uh, not only their union with the Jensen's, but that they would bless uh, the travels and their, um, of course, going from one foreign country to another is, is quite the undertaking. That Pray that God would bless the mission in Thailand, that the gospel would go forth. I know Matt had been working on some translation projects translating some, uh, I think the confession was one of them, uh, several other uh, Puritan documents, uh, translating them into uh, the language of Thailand, the Thai language. And so let's keep them in our thoughts and prayers uh, throughout this month until we come to our next missionary emphasis, uh, just as we do with our families of the month, so we do with the uh, missionaries and missions of the month. Also, we would like to pray for Covenant um, Baptist Theological Seminary. We have two students there. Pastor Tyler is working on a degree there, and uh, Brother Ryan, who is preaching at Lake Chapel this morning, he's also a student at this seminary, and we support the seminary annually. So we want to pray that God would, uh, from this seminary, from the training, raise up godly men uh, to go forth Uh, not just to uh, raise godly families, but these godly men would go forth uh, and help spread the kingdom, that they would be uh, preachers of the gospel, that they would be missionaries, that they would be church planters, that Christ's kingdom would continue to advance uh, using uh, these godly men that are trained at this seminary. And so we would like to to pray for them uh, today as well as uh, throughout this month. So at this time, let's, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Let's pray. Holy Father, Sovereign God, Lord of all, we praise you for being our one true and living God. We praise you, Father. We praise you, Son. We praise you, Holy Spirit, our triune God. Father, you have a wonderful plan of redemption. You have a... In, in, In your covenant, in your eternal covenant, you have covenanted with 
yourself with Christ, with the Holy Spirit to redeem a people for yourself. And in that, you have sent your son, Jesus, to pay the price of redemption for those people. And we are told in your word that these people are not just in Georgia, not just in the United States, but you have a people from every tribe and tongue and kindred and nation. From every people group, Father, you have a people. And the Bible tells us that your ordained means of calling these people to Christ is the gospel. And the gospel is not just something that goes out by itself, Father, but that you have ordained that men should preach this gospel. And so, Father, we thank you for the Jensen family. We thank you for the Van Zyl family who are doing just that, taking your gospel to other parts of this world, to other people groups. Father, we pray that you would bless their efforts, that you would continue to bless them as they learn the culture, as they learn the language, uh, their translation projects, as they translate uh, good documents into the local language and dialect of the people. Father, would you bless them by showing them the fruits of their labors as you gather your precious people into your glorious kingdom. We pray that you would continue to bless them. Would you bless the Van Ziles as they prepare to move? Would you grant them traveling mercies? And we know that traveling from foreign countries to foreign countries can be very taxing, can be very uh, worrisome with the, the legalities and the paperwork and the, the stamps and this and that. Father, would you just bless their transition from South Africa to to Thailand. Would you bless them as they join with the Jensen families and would you use them? Pour out your, a double portion of your spirit on these two families as they uh, further your kingdom in Thailand. And Father, we, as we have already acknowledged that your, your way of spreading your kingdom is through the gospel. And it takes people to spread the gospel. You you have ordained that men, ordinary men, should proclaim your word. And Father, we pray for the, for the seminary, Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary, where they are training young men to do just that, to proclaim, thus saith the Lord, to take your gospel message, Father. And so we pray you would use and bless this seminary and that its students, from its students, you would raise up men to be pastors and teachers and missionaries and church planters, foreign and domestic. That your kingdom would continue to go forth. And that the gospel message would be, would be uh, uh, shouted from every rooftop. And that people would hear and believe and be converted. And that you would bring many men, women, boys and girls, to Christ Jesus our Lord. And Father, would you do this for the sake of your church, for the sake of Christ our King, and Father, for your glory. For it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. If you'd stand now and sing with me hymn number 105, uh, we will sing...
uh, the chorus after the last verse only. Chorus after the last verse only. Please be seated. We come in our course of sermons uh, back to Mark, and I ask you to please take a copy of the Word of God and open it to Mark chapter number four. Mark chapter number four. Actually, I want to read uh, back in chapter 1, verse 15, uh, and then we'll go to chapter 4. Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15 read, Now after Jesus was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee. This is the beginning of what is known as the Galilean ministry and Mark will record this ministry in the next several chapters up through chapter 7, verse 23. So this is the Galilean ministry of Christ. So after John was arrested, Jesus comes into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Now in chapter 4, verse number 11, and he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. And the word secret here is the word mysterion that uh, we find often in the New Testament. So it is a, it's a, uh, a mystery. It is something that was concealed that is now revealed. 
And so to you has been given the mysterion, the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables. And then chapter 4, beginning with verse 21. And he said to them, Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he said to them, Pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. It has a ring, does it not, of the parable of the talents where Christ gives a certain amount of talents and the one who buried his, even from him that buried uh, was taken away what he had and he was left with less than nothing. Verse 25, For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And he said, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. And he said, With what can we compare the kingdom of God, or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which, when sown, to the, uh, sown on the ground, is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet, when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out long, uh, large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. May God be pleased to bless his word and let his people say, please join me in prayer. Holy Father, we are grateful for the day, for your word that has been read in our hearing. I thank you for the opportunity that brings us uh, to speak upon this particular portion of scripture. I pray, Lord, that you would um, help me to understand the, uh, the great seriousness of what I am doing, and yet, Lord, that I may have joy in speaking your word to your people. I pray that we will have ears to hear, that we can understand what is spoken, and that in hearing and understanding, Lord, that you will be exalted, your church will be built up, and any present that know not Christ or that would be listening by some other means uh, that do not faithfully follow the Lord Jesus Christ, that even this day they would be brought to repentance and to new life in our Savior, in whose name I pray. Amen. Well, our text that I've read, uh, really beginning with verse 21 of chapter 4 and moving on, contains three parables. In fact, Mark chapter 4 contains half the parables 
that are recorded in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, there, there are eight uh, uh, parables in Mark. Four of them are right here in this chapter. Now, each parable in this chapter certainly uh, could be considered separately, but I, I don't want to go about it separately. I want to back up, take a step back, maybe elevate ourselves, as it were, and look at it from a different uh, viewpoint. I think that will be uh, helpful in us in understanding uh, the meaning of these parables. Uh, and we have also talked about, and I do that for a couple reasons, we've talked about in the Gospel of Mark, he uses the sandwich technique a lot. That he'll begin a, a, a truth, a point, a story, and then that, there'll be something else that he will insert, place in there, and then he'll come back again to the story that, that he first began with. Well, Mark 4 is really the piece of meat between the two pieces of bread in a sandwich here. I commented when I began reading in chapter 1, that this is the beginning of the, of the Galilean ministry of Jesus. And so from that passage on, from uh, chapter 1, verse 15, actually verse 16, moving forward to chapter 4, you have a record of that Galilean ministry. Then we have, as it were, it's not a, it's not a break, but there, there's, a, there's a shift here. There's a, there's a pause, if you please, where we have these four parables that Jesus teaches about the kingdom of God. And then immediately after these verses that we read, you begin back with the, with the ministry of Christ as he be, uh, goes out, calms the sea, um, heals people, cast out devils, etc. So we have first four chapters, uh, first three chapters, excuse me, the Galilean ministry, what's going on. Then we've got this, and it's part of the Galilean ministry, but we have this teaching about the kingdom. And then we go back uh, to the ministry of Jesus from that point on. Now, what are parables? I know that this has been discussed over the, over the past, uh, the men that have been preaching on this and doing an able job. Uh, but just to refresh our minds, what, what is a parable? Well, David Platt defines a parable thus, a practical story, often framed as a simile. And a simile is using a comparison of like or as. It's a very common a practical story framed as a simile that illustrates a spiritual truth. So we know there's spiritual truth here. That these parables aren't just uh, stories that Jesus tells just to entertain the crowd. He's teaching. The primary purpose of the parable is to teach. It's not entertainment. Now, we know by Jesus' explanation of, of the parable of the sower we know that parables are allegorical. That is a genre of literature. And thus we approach it from that understanding. This is a particular genre in, in biblical literature. And we also understand from Jesus' interpretation in, in the first part of chapter 4, uh, when he interprets the, the parable of the sower, we also how we are to properly interpret parables. Christ does it for us. And there's, there's our pattern in what he does. Now, why did Jesus use parables? <clears throat> well, they're memorable. If you've grown up and been raised <clears throat> around the church, around Scripture, if I were to say to you and I were to give you the first line of a, <clears throat> excuse me, of a parable, you probably could tell me the rest of the parable. They're memorable. They're very pithy little stories that stick in our heads when we learn them. And so there's something that's very memorable. So I would say maybe one reason Christ uses the parables, they're memorable and they're also relatable because most of the stories that Jesus uses were from everyday life, things that people did. 
Like in this one where we had the lighting of a lamp. You can almost see the people smirking as he begins telling this parable. Well, of course you don't put a lamp under a basket. So they're everyday stories. They're memorable. They're relatable to the people to whom he's speaking. But generally, generally Jesus used miracles to reveal truth to believers and confirm hard-heartedness, the rebellion, the blindness, the deafness of those who do not have ears to hear. Now, Paul puts it this way, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? And what's Paul saying? He's saying that in the preaching of the gospel, in the proclamation of the word of God, it is a savor of sweetness to God among those who are being saved because they see, they understand, God has given them ears to hear. But at the same time, that same message, that same word that brings life and rejoicing to some is a savor of death unto death. It's a, it's a seal. It's a revelation of, of their condemnation, of the hardness of their being, of their heart. So parables enlighten or obscure based upon one's spiritual condition in Christ. They reveal truth to those who have ears to hear. And they confirm hard hearts of those who cannot hear. They do not make the hard heart. They just reveal a hard heart. And they reveal ears to hear. John MacArthur puts it this way. In short, Jesus' parables had a clear twofold purpose. They hid the truth from the self-righteous or self-satisfied people who fancied themselves too sophisticated to learn from him while the same parables reveal truth to eager souls with childlike faith, those who were hungering and thirsting for righteousness. So they have this two-edged this, this two sword. It reveals those who have ears to hear, and it reveals hard hearts and ears that cannot hear. Well, how did Jesus use parables? Well, generally, he used them to teach about the kingdom of God. I say generally. I think there's probably exceptions to that. Sometimes people say there's no, God, there's no parables, for example, in the Gospel of John. Well, it's true that the word parable is not used in the Gospel of John. Neither is the word doctrine. It's not used in the Gospel of John either. doesn't mean there's no doctrine there. And we think of Jesus talking to Nicodemus. And there's a parable. And then he talks about the sheep and the, the shepherd and the sheep gate and all of that. And those are parables that, that, are, that are recorded in the Gospel according to John. But we note that primarily Jesus used the parables to teach about the kingdom of God. And often, not always, because we have in our text, it doesn't, it's not always there, but, but often what you will read is the kingdom of God is as or is like whatever. In Matthew 13, you read that statement over and over where you have a, 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 a collection of the parables that Christ gives. 
And most of those are introduced by the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven in Matthew. The kingdom of heaven is like. <clears throat> we have that here in Mark chapter 4, verse 26. The kingdom of God is as if. And then uh, we have that uh, again in verse 30. With what can we compare the kingdom of God? So he's talking about the kingdom of God. And this is primarily, <clears throat> primarily the way the Lord used parables. Now, <clears throat> to understand this impacts our interpretation of the parables. Jesus has already given us the interpretation of the parable of the sower. He's given us the, the guideline. It also provides us guardrails. What do you mean by that? I mean it helps us keep the main thing the main thing. Because if you don't understand that this is primarily what Jesus is using parables for, well, you just wander off into Bypath Meadow and your imagination becomes your guide. But that's not what's happening. He's primarily teaching about the kingdom of God. Now, <clears throat> let me give an example <clears throat> of how sometimes we can misconstrue or maybe maybe not misconstrue so much as just quite not get it. In Luke 15, <clears throat> there are three parables given to us. There's a hundred sheep, there are ten coins, and there are two sons. Now what's the focus? Is the focus the hundred sheep? Is the focus the ten coins? Is the focus the two sons? I would say, what's the commonality there? The commonality is of, of the Savior who comes to seek and save those who are lost. And so the case is with the, the sheep. There's one that's lost. There's the case with the coins. There's a coin that can't be found. And the woman searches the house throughout till she finds the coin. There's rejoicing. And this is the case with the father who welcomes the prodigal. And there's great rejoicing. And if my focus is primarily on the sheep, the coins, or the sons, I miss God. I miss Christ, who's really the focus of these parables. Now, in Mark chapter 4, verses 21 through 32, let's note what is apparent. What is apparent here? Well, what is apparent is the singular subject that Christ is teaching. What's the singular subject he's, he's focusing on? The kingdom of of God. That's the subject. Now I, I rather think that, these, that chapter 4 composes a unit, a single unit. They're all preached the same day. They're all preached in the same location. And they're all on one topic. Notice chapter 4 verse 1. Again he began to teach beside the sea. Now is there any movement? Does Christ geographically relocate? No. We read through Mark chapter 4, and we get down to verse 35. On that same day when the evening had come, he said, let us cross to the other side, and they get in a boat. Where do they get in a boat? Well, where he's been teaching. And they go from that position. So all of this happens, at least according to Mark's gathering of this, happens at one location on the same day. That's why I think of this chapter as a unit. What's going on here is, is, is one teaching, if you please. So it's, it's one, one topic. It's a single unit given on one day. 
Now, what is maybe not quite as apparent is to whom is Jesus speaking? We look at verse 21, and he said to them, who is them? Well, previous to this, Jesus has been speaking specifically to his disciples to explain the parable of the sower. So is, verses, is, is Christ continuing with an explanation? Is he continuing to explain? Is he speaking explicitly to the disciples? Well, some great commentators say yes. William Hendrickson, for example, would say that's who he's talking to, his disciples. It's a continuation. And then there are other great commentators and theologians. James Edwards, for example, says, no, that what we have here is new parables. He's not speaking just to his disciples, but he's speaking again to the crowd. And he's teaching them in these parables. I, I tend to kind of follow that line myself because verse 33, with many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but the them, there's the crowd, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. So I think what we have here is Jesus teaching publicly in parables to the, to the gathered crowd uh, beside the sea. Now, there's two preliminary matters I want us to consider as we begin to try to move down toward unpacking what we've read here. The first matter is the assumed nature of the kingdom of God. There is an assumption concerning the kingdom of God. In other words, what did the people to whom Jesus is speaking think about the arrival and the nature of the kingdom of God? That's question one. That's, that's one thing we need to answer. And the second is, what is the actual nature of the kingdom of God and its arrival? Because there's a mistake. And the parables are to explain the coming of the kingdom. That's their focus. So how did King Jesus explain the nature and arrival of the kingdom? And again, I would suggest that these two things are not the same. That is the assumed nature and the actual nature. Christ is correcting an assumption in the parables. So what do the Jewish people that Jesus is speaking to expect concerning the kingdom of God? Well, I suppose we could say that they're expecting the coming of the kingdom of God to be a cataclysmic apocalyptic event. That's what they expect. Herman Ritterboss, I think, is of, uh, has some words of wisdom here. And he's talking about what the Jewish expectation was. And he says, Israel will be restored as a nation. The Lord will have his throne in Jerusalem. Her enemies will be subjugated. The coming kingdom of God will be inaugurated by the great day of the Lord, the day of judgment for the apostate part of Israel, as well as for the nations in general. And at the same time, it would be the day of deliverance and salvation for the oppressed people of the Lord. The expectation is an outward, national, physical, political kingdom that has is brought about by cataclysmic events with apocalyptic end-time concepts in mind. That's what's expected. You recall how Mark opens his gospel? Remember what he does? The gospel of Mark is different than Matthew or Luke. Different from all the rest. But he opens the gospel basically with a cameo of John the Baptist. And we talked about that when we were looking at chapter 1. So 
why does he why does he begin with this cameo of John the Baptist? Well, who is John the Baptist? Well, John the Baptist was to be the forerunner of the coming Messiah. And we read and we considered Malachi chapter three, and I want to read those three uh, first three verses in your hearing. <clears throat> Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come down or come to his temple. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi, refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Now, what did John the Baptist come preaching? He came preaching, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then we read in Matthew, he said, even now, as John preached, he said, even now is the axe laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Verse 12. His winnowing fork, the Messiah, the coming king, his winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Now you see what I called cataclysmic and apocalyptic language that John is using? John's expectations seem to be eschatological and political. And then John is arrested. And he's put in prison. And what does he do when he's in prison? What, what word does he send? He sends runners to Jesus Christ to ask him a question. And we've pointed this out before. Here is the man who baptized Jesus. Here is the man that, that apparently heard the voice from heaven. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. This is the man that pointed to Jesus and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. Now, this man sends a question. And the question is in, in Matthew 11, verse 2. Are you the one, Jesus, are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? What's going on? I would say that his expectation is not being met. There is an expectation of something that he's not seeing. And he asks a question, are you really the Christ? Well, what did Jesus teach about the kingdom of God? So that there's, that, there's the assumed nature. And then here is the actual nature that Jesus teaches. He teaches it's not a political power or the overthrow of the Roman Empire. That the kingdom is spiritual. He's not worried about the Roman Empire per se as he is the empire of Satan. That you have a titanic clash of light and darkness. So the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. Roman empires will come and go. Nations will rise and fall. But the kingdom of God will go on. It's not bound up in the political release from bondage of the Jews from the Roman Empire or any other empire other than that of darkness. 
Yes, the kingdom of God will eventually have external form, but it's like a growing seed. And there's a time you, can, you don't even know it, but the day of harvest is coming. And when it's full fruit, he will stick in his sickle and he will reap the harvest. Now, I think Jesus is aware of the contrast between the assumed and the actual. And this is what Mark 4 is about. And he says to them in verse 11, the mystery of the kingdom is given to you to understand this. There's been a mistake here, and he is teaching to right that error. Now, Mark 1.15, the announcement, Jesus announces the arrival of the kingdom. And then in Mark chapter 1, verses 16 through chapter 4, verse 1, Jesus gives evidence of the arrival of the kingdom. That's the reason I said, now remember, this is why we're looking at this as a unit. This is a sandwich, if you please. We have the announcement, and then Jesus goes on about his business, and the witness is that he is the king, and the kingdom's come. Let me read to you from John chapter 5, verse 36. Jesus said, but the testimony that I have is greater than that of John, speaking of John the Baptist, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish. The very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. So Jesus makes the declaration in Mark 1.15. And in verses 16 of chapter 1 through chapter 3, verse 34, there is a record, there is a, there is a witness, there is a, valid, a, 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 valid, a validation of that testimony that Jesus has given. You know it's here, you know I'm the king, because what does he do? And he begins the works, and those works testify. He is sent from God. Oh, but how was that received? Well, the responses are varied. Some obey him. He goes by and he calls some, and they instantly follow him. Some don't. Some are curious. They eat the bread, they eat the fish. And they become what would be identified as temporary believers because by and by they'll fall away. But they're, they're, they're caught up, as it were, with the excitement. There are some that contend with him. How come you do not fast like the disciples of John fast? Why is it that you pick grain on the Lord's day? Why are you breaking the Sabbath? Some contend with him. Others accuse him of blasphemy. Oh, no, he's, this isn't being done by God. This is being done by Satan himself. And of course, Christ says, that's ridiculous. A house divided against itself can't stand. And then some hate him to the very point of plotting to kill him. Now, is this the expectation of the people to whom Jesus is speaking of the reception of the king and the kingdom? Not if it's cataclysmic and apocalyptic, No. That's not what they're expecting. But that's what they're seeing, just like John. This is, this is the reality. How could the real king of Salem, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, how can the kingdom of God have such mixed reception among the people? If the coming of the messianic reign 
is the end all, as it were, the establishment of this, this very visible kingdom. How can this be? How can demons rightly recognize him as, as the king, as the son of God, but religious leaders and people, even his own family, be so obtuse and so blind to the truth? That's a question. That's a problem. How are we going to settle this? That brings us to Mark 4 and the parables. You have an expectation. And the expectation is one thing. And Jesus says, I'm, and I'm saying it, paraphrasing, let me explain to you the kingdom of God. And he begins by teaching parables. The focus is the kingdom of God. It's a rival in its nature. Pastor John preached very ably on the parable of the sower, verses 3 through 20 of chapter 4. Not everyone is going to hear and bow the knee. Not to start with, there's going to be various responses. And he, he preached that uh, to us some weeks ago. But now we come today to, to verse 21, where we want to begin digging back in. We have the lamp under the basket parable. What is the purpose of light? Why do you light a light? Why do you do that? So you, you light a light in your house. We have switches. We turn on lights and we go around and we tape over all the, all the light fixtures with, with electrical, black electrical tape so no light can come through, right? That's the reason they're there. No. And what he gives here is he's, he's given them just this it's how ridiculous. You don't light a light to hide it under a basket. Now, here's where Mark differs from Matthew and Luke. And, and, and this is, I think, very important here. Mark will use the definite article, the. It's not a light. Unfortunately, that's the way I think our ESV translates it. More properly, it is the light. It is the lamp brought in to be put under a basket. This, there is the definite article there. That's, that's very important. The lamp is not believers. The lamp is Christ. Because we read in another place about let your light so shine. Well, yeah, that's talking about us, but that's not what's going on here. The lamp is Christ. Ferguson writes, The point of this parable is the contrast between the present concealment of the kingdom of God and its future manifestation. The purpose of Christ is to enlighten, is to reveal, is to give. He is the light of the world. Yet currently, Christ is concealed. Mark 1.25 but Jesus rebuked him, this is the devil, the demon, excuse me, be silent and come out of him. And also we move on to chapter 1, verse 44, where he cleanses the leper and he says to the leper, see that you say nothing to anyone. Don't tell people about this. Of course, he goes out and blabs his mouth anyhow. And we don't blame him. I mean, who wouldn't that receive such a blessing from Christ? But Christ charged him, don't do this. Be quiet. It's concealed. 
But the purpose of the light is not to be concealed. In time, he will undeniably be revealed. But not here. Thus, yes, he tells the disciples, the purpose for a light is to give light. You don't hide it under a bushel, under a basket. And then he goes on to tell them in, verse, in these uh, subsequent verses, 23, 24, 25, so pay attention to what you hear. Because even as one ignores or denies or hides the light, Christ, whatever they may have will be removed from them. So be careful. Be careful. Concerning the centurion, think of it, if you would, for a moment this way. Think of the centurion for a moment in Matthew chapter 8. Jesus said to those who followed him, Truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from the east and west and recline at the at the ta at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom, he's referring to the Jewish people generally, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Even so, we would say with the parable of the talents. From the one who buries, even from him is taken away what he doesn't even have and given to those that do have. And that kind of servant is thrown into outer darkness where there is no light. So Christ comes to give light. Be careful what you hear. Be careful how you hear. And remember, whatever's concealed is going to be revealed. And then we move to the next parable, the parable of the seed, verses 26 through 29. And I would say that as we begin this, verse 26, the kingdom of God is as what he says next is so really unexpected. Oh, the kingdom of God, what's it like? What, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God and the king? Shall I compare it to a triumphal general returning to the city with his glistening army following him that comes back victoriously? Oh yes, that's what I should compare the king and the kingdom to. Or how about a great king robed in splendor sitting on a, bedeck, a, a, a jewel bedecked throne and everybody around him bowing the knee to him. Oh, that's the picture in Revelation I get. But not here. The kingdom of God is as if a man scatters seed on the earth. You go, wow. Thou wasn't expecting that comparison. We might say it this way, and you've heard this before. That's about as exciting as watching grass grow. Well, if we want to put it in that vernacular, maybe we could. The kingdom of heaven is, the kingdom of God is like watching grass grow. You go, wait a minute now. 
that's so anticlimatical. And yet it's like a man sowing seed on the earth. So that's the way he introduces it. So this man scatters seed in verses 26 through 28. Now here, here again, you understand you're dealing with a genre. And so you don't just go, oh, and you pick out every little thing here. You're dealing with a genre. And so in verses 26 through 38, we see that the man scatters a seed and goes about, his, goes about life. He really doesn't even think about the seed, per se. And the seed without his aid or understanding grows. The man, verse 27, sleeps and rises night and day. The seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain, in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in his sickle because the harvest has come. Well, wait a minute. Are you saying God just does this and takes his hands off? That's not the point. That's not, you're missing the parable if that's, if that's where my brain goes. The coming of the kingdom of God is mysterious and sovereign work. Remember what Christ told Nicodemus? The wind blows where it wishes. You hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Very similar. Very similar. The seed is not outwardly spectacular. Its growth here, I don't think, is the center of attention. But I think really what the, the attention here is drawn on in this parable is that, that what he gives here is so common, so unexpected, and, and what's happening is just so commonplace. That, and this seed is it, just kind of forgotten and, and, and un, unnoticed. You ever walked up under a huge live oak to sit in its shade and just enjoy its beauty? And under your feet as you walk up, you're crunching acorns. And you're not really thinking about the acorns. You're looking at the beautiful live oak in front of you. Well, the kingdom of God is like a man who scatters seed on the ground and goes to bed and goes to sleep. And the earth brings it forth without his aid, maybe even without his observation. Verse 29, <clears throat> but that seed continues to grow and it brings forth the, the ear and the grain. And when it's ripe, he sticks in his sickle and gets the harvest. The kingdom of God is like this man planting the seed. It continues to grow, it's unpretentious, it's unnoticed by many until harvest. You place a lamp on a stand to give light and you plant seed for the harvest. This is the kingdom of God. Then we come to the third, actually the fourth parable in the Gospel of Mark chapter 4, but that is the parable of the mustard seed. And again, Jesus compares the kingdom of God to growing seed. To sowing and the growing of seed. 
Verse 30, with what can we compare the kingdom of God or what parable shall we use for it? It's like a grain of mustard seed. Now, sometimes biblical critics will go to this passage and use this passage as a launching ground to go, well, you see the Bible's not true because the mustard seed's not the smallest seed. You go, you're missing the point. Christ isn't in, into some sort of agricultural debate here of what's the smallest seed on the earth. That's not the point. But again, he's comparing the kingdom of God to sowing seed. This time the seed is named. It is the mustard seed. And the reason he names it is because of its smallness. It's very, very small. Now, is the point of this parable to contrast an insignificant beginning with an impressive final size that it goes from what you can't even hardly see which is tiny and grows to a big mighty tree is is that the emphasis of the parable or is the emphasis to indicate the wide inclusiveness inclusive nature of the kingdom of god that the kingdom of god will go beyond the borders geographical borders it's now confined in the kingdom which seems so insignificant will become that which is great. I tend to agree with Edwards who, who suggests that if Christ intended to talk about the glory and the strength of the kingdom in this parable, he could have used a cedar tree, which is often used in the Old Testament parables. But he doesn't use a cedar tree. He uses that which is so small, the mustard seed. Now, verse 32 I think we must, should make some comment about that verse. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants, puts out large branches. Why? Why? Why does it do this? So that the birds of air can make nests in its shade. Well, nesting birds are used by Old Testament prophets often to refer to Gentiles. Ezekiel 31, Assyria there is compared to a cedar. And yet we read, quote, the birds of the heaven made their nest. And you read the passage, you know who the birds of the heaven are. They're the nations, Gentiles. Daniel chapter 4, verse 21, Nebuchadnezzar is compared to a great tree. And we read that this great tree whose branches the birds of the heaven lived. And again, you understand as you read that in its context, He's clearly talking about nations. So what began in Galilee will by the power of God prove to be of ultimate and eternal significance so that the nations of the earth can gather as it were under its shade in its branches. Now, let's review. The kingdom of God is like a man planting seed. That's what he says it's like. First, the Lord of the harvest comes casting seed. Second, that seed is unnoticed, often unappreciated by many. But in a sovereign manner, the Lord of the harvest 
gives the increase and the seed germinates and grows. Thirdly, the Lord of glory comes, the Lord of the harvest comes, and he harvests what he's planted. Now, that's at least something of an overview of the, par- the three parables here in Mark 4. All of them are about the kingdom of God. What is the kingdom of God like? To what shall I compare it? To a man sowing seed. So let's come to our closing thoughts. First, be focused. In Revelation 2 and 3, the lampstand, and I'm not saying we have to take this throughout Scripture, but I'm just pointing out in Revelation 2 and 3, what is the lampstand representative of? The churches. It's the seven churches to whom Christ is addressing. He says you don't light a light. The point of lighting a light is to give light. You don't light a light to put it under a basket. That's not why you light a light. What is the church to do? What are we to do? What is our focus? What is our goal? What is our glory? It is to hold up, to elevate, to declare and preach Jesus Christ the Lord. You don't light a light to hide it. It's meant to give light. The late Dr. Sproul said about preaching and he said this at a National Religious Broadcasters Convention, and he was the keynote speaker, and he had chosen to speak on the eclipse of God. And he said his heart was so heavy as he sat on the stage, which was set up for entertainment, not for preaching. And so he says, my heart was just so heavy, and it just continued to go down and down and down as the two-hour service went on. And he said... Then for the last 30 or 40 minutes before he stood up to preach, they said, now we're going to worship God in these choruses and songs. And and his question is, don't we worship God in the declaration of the Word of God? Don't we exalt Christ when we preach the gospel? He said he stood with such a heavy heart because this concept here among the religious broadcasters who are to be holding forth Christ are hiding Christ. And he goes on to say, I believe we are seeing an eclipse of God in our day, not only in the secular culture around us, but inside the church. In an eclipse of the sun, the moon passes between the earth and sun. The moon does not destroy the sun, it merely hides it. I believe that is what is happening today. God is being hidden or obscured rather than revealed. And so I would say to us, let's be careful. Let's be focused. Let's remember who the main thing is, Christ. Let's remain diligent in our focus. Let every auxiliary, every ministry of this church, every officer of this church, every member of this church, every friend of this church, let us sincerely inquire, how may I exalt Christ? The light has come to shine, not to be covered up. And I would suggest to you that we can cover it up if we're not careful. We'll hide it. It's like we're putting it under a basket. Christ, when we lose that focus. And then secondly, I would say be encouraged and engaged. 
We live in the day of the spectacular, do we not? Churches, conferences, individual believers are often driven by the spectacular. There's no real appreciation of how grass grows. All we want to see is the spectacular. James Edward writes, God does not hurl the kingdom as Poseidon does his thunderbolt. God plants it as a seed, present even now. And I think sometimes we get too caught up with future speculations in the spectacular. And we're blinded to the very spectacular that actually is going on right now all around us. The kingdom of God is like a man who plants seed. And it's taken root. And it's growing. And there are disciples. And there are conversions. And it's wonderful. It's mysterious. It's sovereign. And yet that's so unappreciated. But I'll tell you back to the parable of the, of the sheep. There is rejoicing over one sinner that is found. Over more than 99 righteous who don't think they need repenting. Don't misappreciate the day of small things. Remember the kingdom of God is present and it's growing even if you don't see it or I don't see it. Remember Isaiah 55, verse 11, So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. A savor of life unto life, a savor of death unto death. It will accomplish its, its intended end. And again, I quote from Dr. Sproul. We often do not know what God does with our service. We plant the seed, go to bed, and while we sleep, God germinates the seed so that life grows and eventually produces a full harvest. And God himself reaps for his own glory. We simply need to forget about trying to see the fruit of our service immediately. It does not matter if we ever see it. We are called to take the light and let it shine. Then let God do with it whatever he pleases. My encouragement to you is this. Long forgotten words, actions, and prayers that you engaged in and you maybe don't even can bring to memory today does not mean that that's futile. Kingdom of God is like a man plants seed. And its germination is not even perceptible, as it were. Your prayers for your children or your family's salvation, you may not see the immediate fruit. Thus is the nature of the kingdom of God. Your training of your children. You're getting up on Sunday morning and bringing them with you and having them with you in worship service. That, that There's so many things that get thrown at you that make would go, I don't want to, you know, it would be easier if I don't do this. It's not futile. Your labor in the Lord is not in vain.
the intent of sowing is fruit, is the harvest. Now, we don't know that harvest till the harvest comes. All we do is we engage in being faithful. So I encourage those of you, you deacons, you teachers, you nursery that work in the nursery that engage in various ministries in the church. Keep the main thing the main thing. Focus on Christ. And never underestimate what God may do with your faithful labor. We don't know. Don't be discouraged. And then lastly, be watchful. The kingdom is like a man sowing seed. Understand that the kingdom of God is here. It is now. It's happening all over. And understand the kingdom of God is coming. We pray, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. It's coming. The kingdom of God is like a man sowing seed. The seed is being scattered. The seed often is unnoticed. It's growing mysteriously, sovereignly. But when the harvest is ripe, the sower reaches in his sickle to gather his harvest. And then, and then will be the ultimate epiphany. That is the ultimate epiphany. When nothing that is concealed will remain concealed, but will all become revealed. And there will be no denying King, King Jesus. Today, people get weary and they go, well, where is the promise of his return? And we go, well, the kingdom of God is like a man sowing seed. Don't measure it all by the outward physical, but understand and believe in the sovereign, gracious God that we worship and serve. May the Lord bless you and help us as we consider these parables. Let's pray together. Father, please bless the word that has gone out, that has been according to your word, truthful. Throw away the husk. Throw away that which is of uh, no value. But purify that which has been useful and apply it, Lord, into the hearts and minds of your people. Help us, Lord, to be grateful for the day in which we live, for the work of Christ in the day in which we live. Help us, Lord, to understand and appreciate that we live in a time where seed is growing, your work goes on, sovereignly, mysteriously often, but, Lord, it goes on. Encourage your people in the rearing of their children. Encourage your people in the work and labors of the various ministries of this church. Encourage, Lord, your people as we pray. It seems at times with no result at all for salvation, for enlightenment, for our own edification, Lord. It seems that our battles often go forward, then backward. But, Lord, encourage your people that your work goes on. Help us, Lord, to be careful how we hear. Help us to be diligent in exalting Christ, our Lord and Savior. For it's in his name we do pray. Amen.
stand to receive the benediction, then we'll join in singing the doxology. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Amen.